Well, our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, and we're reading chapter 52, starting from verse 13, and we'll read all the way through to the end of chapter 53. Um, If you've got the blue Bibles on your seats, you can find it on page 735, or you can follow along on the screen. Verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut down their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that bore us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, everyone, it's great to have you with us. Uh, As we begin today, I'd love you to take a minute to reflect on how you think you're travelling at the moment. 
If you had an uninterrupted, unguarded hour with a good friend over a beer or a coffee, what stories do you think would flow from your heart? My sense of the moment as our third COVID-affected winter comes to an end, what feels like it's coming to an end uh, today at least, is that we're in a transitionary moment. There's a desire and some good reasons to be optimistic, yet there are still many tensions across our workplaces, our homes, the economy and the communities that we're part of. Problems as yet that we haven't found solutions to. I don't know about you, but for me, in the good times and the bad, and in the many places in between, it's easy for my field of view to shorten down just to the day or week ahead. There's been many a time over the last few years where that's been the right thing to do, and in many ways there certainly is a a sense of freedom and simplicity in it. Yet if we never look up, if we walk head down through the valleys of life sometimes, we can get a little lost and become uncertain about where to tread next. Taking a moment to kind of expand our horizon to think of the years and decades ahead, where under God we might like to go, can reorient us. It's like climbing to the top of a mountain range and looking out to the far horizon and kind of getting your bearings and seeing the big picture. Today's passage from Isaiah, I think, is one of the great high points of the Old Testament. We've been working our way through Isaiah, sort of the first half of the book last year and this year, and we're kind of finally here to kind of the Mount Everest, I think, of the Old Testament. And looking at a truly far horizon, from the perspective of God whose time horizon stretches out so much further than ours, to see what's truly important to him as he looks at his world and acts throughout history, today and tomorrow, until the appointed end. My hope today is that you'll find the view quite breathtaking and that looking to this far horizon might bring comfort, joy, awe and help you reframe and reorient this next chapter of your lives. And that of us as a church family together, that it might challenge and change us, that in response to God's grace we might be a community growing in that sense that we're wholeheartedly living for God's glory, bringing the extraordinary news of Jesus to those around us as we find both comfort in times of weakness and experience the goodness of God walking in his ways each day. If you're here today thinking through who Jesus is for the first time, it's a great day to be with us, which I hope leaves a lasting impression on you. As you come to see why Christians love Jesus so much, why potentially from where you'll sit you would want all of this to be true, and why it's worthy of further investigation. So if you haven't already, open up Isaiah 52 to verse 13, which is on page 735 of the Bibles on your seats, or open up in an app of some description. And as you do that, just a lightning recap, that the start of this series from chapter 40 this year is all on the website, and uh, last year's series on the first 39 chapters is there as well. But in recent weeks, we've seen that in Isaiah's day, the nation of Israel are heading towards destruction and exile 
because of their sin and their propensity to worship anything other than the one true God. Isaiah's ministry has been to prepare them to understand this time of exile, punishment and discipline are right from God's perspective. And it's at a hinge point of Isaiah's ministry recorded for us starting in chapter 40 that Isaiah kind of moves from the nation's present problems to a kind of future unspecified time where God will solve the problem beneath all other problems, the problem of the human heart. Saving a people for himself that will relate to him aright with hearts transformed to worship and enjoy him forever. And in recent weeks, Isaiah has been building a picture of a coming kind of yet unnamed servant who will accomplish great deeds that will bring blessing to the far reaches of the globe. I like Isaiah's kind of turn of phrase, you know, to the far islands, yet unknown in his day. They're often referred to as the servant songs, and today's reading, I think, quite clearly contains the best song on Isaiah's album. As Isaiah opens, speaking, of, speaking God's words in verse 13, he says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And you'll note there's a little uh, footnote in the phrase there in your Bibles uh, around that term, act wisely, which if you look down just a few lines in your Bibles at the bottom says, kind of, will prosper. And whenever you see those little footnotes, it's a signal that there's something in our English language that can't quite capture from the original language Isaiah was recorded in, in this case Hebrew, uh, the full meaning of what's being said there. The average Jew would have had a much stronger connection uh, than we do between the ideas of wisdom, prosperity and success. So really God is saying more fully, see my servant will prosper and be successful in his plans. He'll be raised, lifted up and highly exalted, which kind of sets the tone a little better than simply acting wisely. God's servant is really going to deliver here. He's going to be successful. Yet Isaiah then says something entirely unexpected in two ways. He first switches, like prophets sometimes do, to speaking of the future as if it's already happened. But also the content of what he says is entirely unexpected that this highly exalted, successful one will suffer appallingly. Verse 14. Just as many... Uh, who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Which to Isaiah's first readers and to us still today is, is quite a perplexing kind of turn of phrase. That sense of surprise is a little dampened uh, for Christians familiar with the New Testament making it clear that Isaiah was speaking in these words of Jesus. A story like uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch recorded for us in Acts chapter 8 has an almost kind of comical aspect to it. We read of the uh, Ethiopian reading uh, this servant song from Isaiah whilst in uh, chariot traffic one day. Bad form, I think, driving a chariot, trying to read a scroll at the same time. Should have been docked points off his license. Anyway, Philip jogs up alongside and says, do you understand what you're reading there, mate? <laughs> No, says the Ethiopian, how can I unless you, someone explains it to me? Is Isaiah talking about himself here or someone else? 
And Philip shares with him that it was Jesus Isaiah was speaking of prophetically. And he shares the good news of the death of Christ for our sins. They see some water pull over, the Ethiopian is baptised and heads off rejoicing, having been reconciled to God. Now, I really don't know what the first readers of Isaiah may have made of verse 14. Maybe they thought back to Hezekiah in their recent history. Maybe it just kind of blew their mind on what this picture of the servant who was to come as it's given more detail. For us, though, knowing Isaiah speaks of Jesus, if you've seen the kind of brutality of the flogging and crucifixion process that Jesus endured in at the hand of uh, the Romans in uh, a movie. I think Passion of the Christ probably captures it the most. I remember sitting down to watch Passion of the Christ in the movies uh, when it came out, just going by myself like I like to do at the movies. About 15 or 16 teenagers came and sat down behind me, kicking the seats, making noise. When it came to the crucifixion, silence except for the tears. It is that confronting when you see what happened to Christ on that day when he was taken to the cross. Uh, As Jesus was marked and disfigured beyond human likeness, as Isaiah said he would. And verse 15 just adds further mystery to our picture that something is coming and will happen that's unlike anything our world has ever seen. With the idea of sprinkling and cleansing many nations, powerful kings being rendered speechless, Those without the privilege of hearing God's plans in advance being shocked at what would happen when this servant came. And verses 1 to 3 of our next chapter are actually a pretty unhelpful chapter break, I might add, right in the middle of Isaiah's greatest servant song. Chapter 53 opens up with what I think is kind of verse 2 of his hit song, showing us that God will enact quite an unusual strategy through his servant. As he says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Kind of asking the question, how how would the arm of the Lord, this kind of, how would the God of all the universe display his power and might? And why would he do it in this way with this suffering servant? Who has this been revealed to and who is going to believe this message? That is verse 2 and 3 continue to show us, isn't how the powerful in our world kind of tend to roll and bring forth their plans. This servant is like a vulnerable, tender green shoot springing forth in an unlikely and pretty desolate place with no beauty or majesty to draw us to him, who when we actually see across the pages of the New Testament as Jesus strides the earth as this promised servant, certainly kind of made some close bonds with a small band of followers and some of the downtrodden in our world. But generally speaking, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering and pain from whom people hid their faces and closed their doors as Jesus carried his own cross up that desolate hill. The phrase at the end of verse 3, he was despised and we held him in low esteem, really reflects the common verdict of humanity upon Jesus. This is an unlikely and incredibly unusual strategy, a path the wise of this world would never tread, 
yet it was the path our God chose. And as we move to the central verse in Isaiah's song, it's worth noting that a carefully constructed Jewish poem or song like this one, it's at the very centre of the song in the kind of Jewish tradition where you put the most important point that you want people to focus in on. So let's have a look at verses 4 and 6 together. To see the very heart of Isaiah's song which shares with us the very heart of God's loving plans for our world. Isaiah kind of ratchets up the rhetoric here, making it intensely personal for every person who's ever read this or had it read to them across history. And it does it by using just that alternation between the he, him language and drawing us all in with the kind of we, our words. As Isaiah speaks ever so clearly about Jesus' death, many generations before Christ would ascend that hill, brutalised to the very limits of humanity, with a cross upon his shoulders. From verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The first readers of Isaiah would have had far less problems with this idea than our modern ears do. The Jews had a deep sense of the holiness of God, that his presence could bear no sin, and they knew they had a pretty long list of failures. They were used to the idea of God showing grace and mercy towards those he loved, teaching them both the seriousness of sin whilst at the same time cleansing them of it through a substitutionary death in their place. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament had taught them that. Their corporate history told them that story. What would have blown their mind was that God was going to send this mysterious, suffering, conquering servant to die in their place. Now, if you're here today thinking through who Jesus is for the first time or the first time in a while, you'll likely have a different response. And of course, Christians can sometimes struggle to comprehend it too because of the kind of the, the notions that we pick up from our world. I think so many struggle with the concept that our sin was bad enough that the punishment for it is death. We are products of a very different cultural story, a story that tells us and helps us to overlook our many faults, to frame ourselves as the good guys and to blame politicians, blame our ancestors, blame corporations, blame, blame the baby boomers, blame Gen Z, blame pretty much anyone to discourage us from taking a deeper look within and seeing actually that self-interest taints us all. Turning a blind eye to the power we wield coming off the back of pushing others down in far-off places. Not wanting to see the underlying, underlying problem beneath all problems is the state of the human heart and our stance towards God. And God says throughout his words, I have given you sufficient evidence 
woven into the majesty of this created world. If you were you know, out last night driving down the hill when you saw the sunset, for example, we were talking to Poppy about how just the glory of God's creation uh, tells us something beautiful about who God is. And even in a world marred by all that we do to it, there's a beauty kind of woven into our hearts that sings when we see God's glorious creation that kind of longs for something so much better. We long for justice. We long for equality. We long for all to prosper. God says, this is sufficient evidence that I am here, that I created all of this, as we remembered in communion today, and that I love you. Yet our world and us, there's, there's part of us that we actively suppress that truth in our rebellion. We dishonour God by worshipping the good things he has given us rather than orienting our whole lives around the good gift giver. It is confronting to explore these truths. It strikes at our pride to see the seriousness of what we've done. The truths we suppress to our own ends and consider God's just and right anger against it all. Now, having kind of been through it myself and helped many others work through it, I always encourage people as they kind of come through our life series and we unpack this, or if I'm reading the Bible with someone one-to-one, to encourage people to be sceptical of their scepticism. Because we can't judge impartially about God and our sin. Now, you know, being on a jury duty has come to our uh, forefront in, in recent weeks and the seriousness of that. I've done jury duty. And I know that if you have any personal knowledge of anyone in the case that is to be judged, you have to recuse yourself from the jury because you are deemed unfit to judge impartially. When it comes to God and our sin, we are the accused. Yet we think we can sit in the jury and pass judgment upon God. As we consider the case, we are involved in the deepest way possible, yet we can't recuse ourselves. Hence my encouragement, if you're thinking through these things for the first time, to be sceptical about your scepticism. We cover this and much more in our life series, which is a great next step if you're considering Jesus. And um, also, we'll be running our next life series early in the new year. But in the meantime, we've got some great resources to encourage you to read through an account of Jesus' life yourself. And we've got uh, also many people with willing hearts who would love to help you do so. If that's you, there's a little response slip on our leaflet. Just tick the, I'd like to find out more about Jesus and we'll be in touch. But for now... I'd ask you to suspend your judgment on the seriousness of the issue as we have a look at the beauty of God's love-driven solution from verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, which we now know as Jesus, the iniquity of us all. God takes the iniquity uh, of us, and lovingly lifts it from our shoulders and lays it down on the servant's shoulders. Justice, the punishment of wrongdoing, is so woven into God's character that he cannot simply overlook bringing it. 
God's love for us, his children, is also so much a part of who he is that he cannot stop but pursue us to win us back into a right relationship with him. So this is God's solution to send his servant, his son, the one we now know as Jesus, to bear our sin for us. And the humility of this servant, you can look back on now, upon his work at that very first Good Friday. And humility is the word for exploring these things. Because Jesus' humility and obedience really is something to behold. From verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." There is something encouraging and there's much compelling evidence to put on the table here if you are considering Christ that these many little details told centuries before by Isaiah before this all played out and the death of Christ, you know, assigned death with the wicked, crucified between two criminals, buried in a rich man's tomb as we know it was. There are facts of history that cannot be ignored. There is proof here, compelling evidence that demands a verdict woven all throughout this passage and indeed the whole Old Testament. Yet the biggest impact this should, all, should make, kind of where our hearts should run in wonder and awe, is the same place Isaiah's first readers would have been overwhelmed by. That this was done for us, for you and for me out of great love. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced for our transgressions. As his body's weight crushed and suffocated him, as the cross was raised and dropped in the ground, he was oppressed and affected willingly without any protest. As God come to earth as a man, he not only bore our humanity as our creator God, he did not open his mouth and call on an army of angels. As my favourite line in our kids' Bible puts it, that I'm reading through with Poppy at the moment, it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was love. It was love for you and for me. And verse 10 tells us that this was always going to be the plan. As we read, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Resurrection and victory for this age and the age to come were at the heart of God's loving plan as Jesus sees the light of life and is satisfied to look down through time and to justify you and me and every person across the planet who places their trust in Jesus to know that he has borne our iniquities. 
He has interceded for us. As one of my favourite authors on the cross, Donald MacLeod, puts it, the advocate Jesus not only pleads for his client, but he takes his place in the dock. He becomes the accused. He becomes the condemned and guilty one. He is led out to execution, not only with his client, but in his, in his place. The client goes free. The advocate is crucified, receiving the wages of his client's sin. That's the love Jesus has for you. That's the long view, the far, far horizon of God to pursue us in this way, remaining just, showing us grace, showing us mercy through a plan born of the deepest of the farthest reaches of God's love for us. And God's Spirit testifies to this love in the heart of every believer. And God is on a mission, (laughs) the mission, for his church to share this great news, calling people from across the globe, the furthest islands, from his prophet Isaiah, who could never have conceived of this island, of this day. Yet Jesus saw it, And was satisfied, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Rising to a new and eternal life, he shares that spoil with us. Now, in light of this great truth and God's great plan, what does that tell you about your identity? Well, it tells you that you're a much-loved child of God. And what passions do these great truths kind of inspire in your heart? What kind of is lifted to the fore? Well, surely it's a passion for God's glory, a a passion to take up our place and our commission from Jesus to go and to make disciples. Orienting our whole life around worshipping God isn't an ego trip for God. It's to take up his passion for the world and to be transformed into an other person-centred person who follows Jesus. To be intimately concerned for others. To address the deepest problem in the world, the problem of the human heart, by introducing people to the great heart surgeon, Jesus. So today, I want you to step back and take a view of a much farther horizon. I must admit I find eternity a little hard to grasp, so I landed on a nice round number, 25 years. (laughs) So look back, if 25 years, if you're that old, maybe a little shorter for some of our youth uh, here today, and consider where you were. Now, on a number I just picked out of the air because it's a nice round number, I had to chuckle a little when I kind of counted back 25 years. 25 years ago, I was parting my way around Europe just weeks away from the moment in a hotel room by myself where I was finally convicted of my sin after hearing the good news of Jesus years on end, probably some 15 years or so. And I fell on my knees in tears and gave my whole life to Jesus. Since then, so much has happened. But the overriding thing that gave me joy were all the people along the way. I thought of my first gig leading a group of year nine boys in youth, my first sort of role of leadership in the church. 
And I've seen a number of them kind of step out of their parents' shadow and make a deeply personal commitment to Jesus. And it's a joy to see them following Jesus and loving their church family. And there's a number here uh, today as I look around the room and at Tonsley and, and across the network as well. Working out what it means to live their whole lives for God's glory. And without telling you 25 years of stories, let me fast forward to a Sunday uh, just about three weeks ago. Um, we finished our, our kind of service uh, here. It was uh, my first uh, Sunday back here after a longer than expected absence uh, from Kernelite Gardens, both at Tonsley and a few other places. And as I stood at the back of church after the service, I think Tom might have been on, on sound that day, I said to Tom, I reckon... That's probably my favourite Sunday that I've ever had here at Candlelight Gardens. Now, this kind of works on two levels, so let me explain. Like, you know, there's a great passage opening up, Isaiah 40, sort of getting into the series. You know, I really enjoyed that. It was the day that Matt and Esther both so thoughtfully and lovingly shared some of God's work in their life. Uh, the prayers were great. Uh, it was really, uh, the service was really well led by Lauren, and the singing was, yeah, just really something else. So it's kind of, there's kind of level one that kind of made my heart sing. But probably on a much deeper level, I think what just generated so much joy was the fact that I sort of, I remember what it was like <laughs> sort of starting up here, that, you know, that, that moment sort of 10 years before when we sang the birthday song to Finello as we gathered as a group of people thinking about would we start this new ch church here in Kernelite Gardens. And I, I remember um, sort of you know, feeling sort of the, the weight of just sort of feeling like it was, you know, it's incorrect, of course, but feeling like it was all on me to kind of make this church plant happen. Now, I've learned a lot about uh, servant leadership since then, and I've still got a lot to learn. But I think what really made my heart sing is after being away for three months, it's just seeing, you know, teams of people like joyfully calm and putting out the chairs and, you know, kids putting the pens on seats, the, the band rehearsing, the people coming to welcome, people coming to serve our kids and sort of feeling like, you know, other than, you know, preaching the word, which is an important thing, there's just, there's just this beautiful picture of God's people loving and serving one another and that great testimony from Matt and Esther about how they'd felt loved and cared for at a, at a time where I knew they were going through something significant, yet feeling really confident that they had a, a strong church family around them and loved them. So there was the kind of the, the beauty of an absolute ripping service, but also that deeper need of just seeing something really healthy and beautiful happening in the life of God's people. So that's why I describe it as perhaps my favourite Sunday uh, ever here at Kernelite Gardens. Just a normal Sunday where we're getting to know new people, but also seeing others whom we've forged deep relationships, serving God side by side for many years. So looking forward 25 years, and I can still say this before my birthday this week, I'll be 72, and I'll consider it a great joy if God grants it to me to live that long, and if Jesus hasn't returned before then, I want to be the older guy sitting in church, welcoming people, encouraging others, opening up God's word, singing too loud and out of tune because my hearing's gone, <laughs> but with great joy in my heart. <laughs> because God's purposes and plans are all about people, people like you and me, being reconciled to him through Christ 
who climbed that hill, a cross upon his shoulders, bearing the humiliation, the pain, and our sin for us. Has God's love and justice met at that cross? And has God in his great power raised him to life, bringing many to glory? And Christ was satisfied to bear our iniquities. So with that in mind, from that kind of mountaintop, ask yourself that question. Because of whom I've been made in Christ, because of the passions it evokes in us, what am I going to give the best of myself to for the next 25 years? Of course, it's to Christ, his plans, his gospel, his church here on earth. And as we work our way through this transitionary moment, what habits might you need to change to give yourself more fully to the big picture plans of Christ? Well, I really look forward to sharing that with many of you in our Where To Next dinners in the weeks ahead. But what hours could you cut from your week of things of lesser value that you give for things that you will really treasure in 25 years as I've reflected on my last 25. What is that going to mean for you? What, is, what are you looking back on and what are you looking forward to? Well, I'd encourage you to give the best of yourself to things that will last for eternity. Answer that question in this next chapter of your life in the weeks and months and years ahead Well, that's the right response to what we've seen today from the mountaintop of the Old Testament. As as you do so, um, almost kind of thinking like, what does this mean for the week ahead? This week I've chosen something a little different. Uh, It's actually an EP from a musician that I, I know and really love, I think, who writes great songs. There's an EP with five songs on it from a musician that I think captures the heart of the gospel in song in a way that you can really rock out to uh, in a car uh, this week. Uh, You'll see it there on the bottom of your uh, sermon uh, outline. It's an EP from a guy called uh, Trevor Hodge, who helps us to rejoice in the identity Jesus has won for us and helps, I think, in a way that music really does stir the passions that flow from such beautiful truths. It's an EP called Once for All, and I've made a note for there in the outline. Now, if this is the point where you're saying, I've never got my head around streaming, it's available all free on something like Spotify. Um, so it's, I, I think, uh, so ask someone who is tech savvy to help set that up for you. Because it's good for the heart to give voice to what Christ has done for us, which of course we're going to do as we sing our final song today. But this week too, Rock out to it in the car, wherever you are, as you look to that far horizon. But for now, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your great kindness, uh, you declared in advance, some almost 700 years in advance, exactly what you would do uh, through your servant and your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, What... Uh, in a way that our world and the powerful uh, in it would never choose, yet you and your infinite power chose that Christ would humbly carry that cross up that very lonely hill to bear our iniquities. 
We thank you for the joy of Christ that as he looked down the corridor of the time that for every person who would place their trust in him, that he would see that and be satisfied. Please, Lord, um, just do a great number in our hearts by your spirit to speak to who that is, what identity that you've given us in Christ as we sing today and throughout the week and in the months ahead. Please drive these great truths into our heart in a way that just helps us transcend the, the challenges of living in this time in such a beautiful way that really joyfully and willingly we might give the best of ourselves to you for the next 25 years with hope in our hearts, knowing that we're giving ourselves to something of immense value that will last for eternity because of what Christ has done for our church and because of the rich blessing it is that Christ has called us, his church here on earth, to participate in the, the greatest, most significant cause in history, reconciling people to you and into your church family. It's in his precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.